Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Unplug It. As we tick towards round 21, we will wrap the Hawthorne game in a moment, but I do love my statistics. There are two things that haven't happened for or to St Kilda since 1999. One of them is we haven't won a game at Cadinia Park since 1999. And the other one is we haven't missed the finals after being in the eight within three weeks of the finals since 1999. There is a belief that unless one happens, the other one will, if that makes sense. So uh, it is an interesting little piece of symmetry that we are reach now. It is not necessarily absolutely do or die. I believe that if St Kilda win the two games that follow Geelong, enough things will happen for them to make the eight. But obviously, uh, Geelong is one of three opportunities for the Saints to pick up the two victories they need in order to get their the Hawthorne and probably the West Coast equation before that were entirely non-negotiable. They just had to be wins. It didn't matter how it happened. They had to find a way to get there. And that's probably the best way we can describe the Hawthorne game. And Michael, as I, as I bring you in, I guess my summary of it was that it's almost identical to the clash we had against Collingwood late last year, where we dominated for three quarters and then lost our way uh, and just hung on under a fair bit of pressure late in the contest. And I look at it as maybe not as bad a win as, as, as some might say. You're always a bit flat when you, you finish a game just hanging on when you were miles ahead and it kind of doesn't feel as great as perhaps it should. But for large parts of the game, they did probably two-thirds of the game really well. And it, it's the one part of the game, and I know you've been big on this and, and welcoming Michael back um, covering Aaron McGrath, who's a, a little bit crook, not COVID, but, but a little bit unwell. Um, I know you've been big on the our, our consistent failures to capitalise on dominance. Yeah, um, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me back. Great to be here. Um, yeah, it was, as you say, it was it was three quarters of okay footy and we had our chances to really put our foot down and, and do some damage to them and do some, you know, help our percentage a bit, but it didn't happen. And, um, you know, you, you're right. I've been pretty critical of um, turning effort into scores over the course of the year. And um, I was listening to last week's podcast and Nick um, Nick said that um, even when we're playing well, our one Achilles heel has been the forward line. And I, I remember just nodding to myself and saying that is absolutely spot on. Um, look, part, parts of the game were better. Our defence was terrific. You know, even without dudes, I thought they were cohesive. I thought Sinks was great. Um Obviously, the um, the message we all saw on the you know on the on the um, dressing room video the week before about how rats um, pleaded for some more sort of um, lifting of standards on the field and for the players to um, not accept mediocrity and to sort of you know not be afraid to give their teammates a bit of a spray if they thought they could do better. I I saw one example of that with my own eyes in the third quarter. I think it was when Max King tried to sort of dodge around four blokes and kick banana goal of the year. And Mason Wood gave him a fearful bake after that. I believe there was a couple of others, more than one maybe aimed at Max that I didn't see, but I've, you know, read on the social since then that it happened. So I guess, you know, they did respond to that. Um, the mid, the midfield crouch was fantastic. And obviously, you know, Roma's game has been well talked about, but yeah, it's just that forward line again. We should have been those last five Hawthorne goals should have been just absolute junk time consolation goals. We should have been 10 goals in front of three-quarter time. 
We should be 10 goals in front at halftime, I'd say. Yeah, that's right. We were like halfway through the second quarter when we we're up by 11 points. It felt like on the balance of play, we we're up by 70. It, it yeah. was just, it was so frustrating. I mean, it was, it was so much like the week before. I mean, that, that mm. first quarter against West Coast where we were so dominant and then West Coast went bang, bang, bang at the end of the first quarter and all of a sudden they were ahead. It was, it was very similar against Hawthorne where we controlled the game for so long, but just could not put the score on the board and turn it into that big, big um, lead that, that you know, I guess it eventually did in the third quarter when it get out, got out to 40, 42 points or whatever it was. But you know, it really should have been that at quarter time and, and throughout the second quarter, it really should have been 60 points or 70 points, like you said. But Mike, I reckon I, I gave max one or two of those bakes from the from the stands uh at that particular moment that that you've mentioned but you're right i mean the back line has has been superb all year i think this they've probably had one or two maybe down games but that's about it and when you when you look at the 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 fixture and the schedule and the quality of midfields and forward lines that we've had to face what they've done week after week has been quite enormous and and i think even without dougal howard you know i didn't think that cal wilkie could go to another level but it just seems like he he's always able to find another gear. And what he's done in the last month, I guess, has been superb again. And he, he had another fantastic game. One that I've, I've been, I guess, a little bit critical of was the, the move of Cooper Sharman to defense. And it, it's not one that I love. I, I feel like he's a much more dynamic, impactful player up forward where he can use his uh, God-given abilities more than anything. To, to impact the game, but I was really impressed with him on, on the weekend and the way that he attacked the contest, uh, attacked the man with the ball, attacked the ball in general. And, and I thought that he was, he was really good, but you're right, Mike. I think the, the way that the, the players stood up, I guess, to each other and as a group in providing some of that on-field feedback and, and leadership, uh, we, we see it from Jack Steele on field all the time. We see it from Tim Membry all the time, but I, I feel like there's been, I guess, outside of those two, a bit of a vacuum in leadership. And, and I think we started to see that on the weekend and, you know, seeing guys like obviously Dan Hanabry come back. I think that that had an impact. Um, Jack Sinclair, I think, stood up in that regard as well. You, you're seeing more voice out of guys like Cal Wilkie. Um, but Mason Wood is, is one, and I might touch on Wood a little bit later on, but um, just one who, who has impressed me week after week with his ability to be involved. And to, to, I guess, keep contributing, even if he's not the star. I remember at North Melbourne, yeah, he was kind of the next big thing. He was a, 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 a very highly rated forward um, who could impact the scoreboard and, and whatever. But with us, he's been very much that link player through the wing, through the middle of the ground. Um, and, and I guess providing an avenue inside 50 um, to, to other forwards. And just the way that he stepped up um, this, this year has been really impressive. And, and then you look at the young blokes, Wind Hager and, and uh, uh, Mitch Owens and and the fact that they're willing to get stuck in and, and get their hands dirty in some of those contests um, and, and using their voice as well has been really impressive. Yeah, it looked to me, I mean, Severos is a, a leader, but he obviously spoke post-game when they show a lot of the, the videos and stuff like that. And he, I think he made mention he actually addressed one of his teammates. It might have been Wilkie. He said, oh, when you came over and gave me a bake for, for not taking that option in the middle, he's like, oh, I fucking loved it. And, and I'm like, it's good that they're embracing that type of thing where he was like, you know, that's what I want you to do. You know, if I miss something, come and tell me. No, 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 I've got to open open my eyes and be better than that. And and, and I love that they're, they're sort of taking that in. And I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that, look, our game was in disarray a few weeks ago. Um 
but at least now, obviously, the defensive structures that served us well at the start of the year are, are kicking back in. Our midfield clearance work has been better. Our Achilles heel has been forward of centre for three or four years, possibly longer. Um, earlier this year, not so three much. Three or four decades. That's right. But obviously, earlier this year when we were opening up Richmond and opened up Hawthorne and had that great second half against Geelong, it looked like we'd found a way to capitalise, but we've sort of slipped back into some of those bad habits. I mean, in this game, we... Not only did we not get shots, but we, we missed a lot of genuine sitters. Obviously, Membry missed two sitters in the first half. King kicked two goals, five, and one out in the full. Um, we missed a lot of set shots. Uh, so even with the, the fact that we we're butchering opportunities, we probably should have kicked 16 goals just with the opportunities we actually had. Clearly playing Geelong at Cadinia Park, you have no margin for error in that space. So you, you've got to make sure that you take all of your chances. I mean, we'll preview that game in a minute. But um, yeah, look, and, and I guess a thought on, on Hanabry. I mean, the contract stuff, we could maybe put a pin in that and discuss that over sort of coming weeks. But he did demonstrate what we've actually been missing. I mean, it, it's not just a case of, oh, there's Dan Hanabry on the, uh, on the injury list. And we, we've made you know, the odd joke about it, because what else can you do? But we've been denied access to a very, very good footballer for a very long time. And and that's unfortunate. Um, And he's demonstrated that he can play. Contract aside, I think that's, that's the main, the main takeout. And and I, Mm. I don't think anyone has ever doubted that Mm. this guy can play football. He's a really, really good footballer. And it's, it's not his football ability. That's been, you know, the, the, the detraction from his career since he he came to us it's it's been injury and that's you know it's not his fault um and like you said we'll probably touch more on contract stuff um towards the end of the year and potentially after after we play our final game whenever that might be but um look the, the reality is that Dan Hanabry is a very good footballer when he's fit and healthy he's a very very good footballer and probably in our top two or three pure footballers on the list when he's fit and healthy. And yeah, that's all I'm, that's all I want to say about Dan Hanabry. Yeah, I, I agree, Nick. He's um you couldn't have wanted for a better return from him, in all honesty. You know, he he was leading on the field, he just does smart things, makes good decisions, which sometimes, you know, a few of his fellow midfielders don't. Um, I was I was wrapped with his comeback game. We just need to keep his body right for the rest of the year. And and who had you know, I'm I think I'm all in favour of giving him another year, but being a Saints fan, of course, you then think, well, we give him another year on minimum money and, you know, he can have an off-field sort of coaching role and whatever, and then we'll wake up on the 1st of January, you know, or whenever it's their first training run after Christmas is, and it will be, you know, with suddenly with the rehab group and all of a sudden we don't see him till August again. So you've just that unfortunately would... got this sort of... That would be so St Kilda, wouldn't it? I mean, it would be it would be so St Kilda, and that's that's why that exists. But I mean, the 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 thing about Hanabry, and I think what what sets him aside almost from anybody else, and we know how good Jack Steele is. We know how well he leads on the field, and and he leads by actions. He doesn't talk a lot. He doesn't use his voice that much. He doesn't get angry and you know uh, definitive and and demonstrative and and all that sort of stuff like you would see from a yeah, a Nick Rewalt, for example. But um, what what Dan Hanabry has that I don't think anyone else on our list, including Jack Steele, has is that ability to bring blokes along with him. Yep. And to yep. you know, he he not only leads by example, but he forces other players to step up and run with him. And as good as Jack Steele is, and I love Jack Steele, he doesn't seem to quite have that in him just yet. It's not to say he won't. He's a fabulous player. 
and he's the right man for the captaincy without a doubt. But Dan Hanabry has a different type of leadership and a different type of impact on players around him. And, um, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next you know, month to yeah, two months. Yeah, whether they look at, um, you know, bottom bottom level or, you know, D-list and rookie list or, you know, base wage. And, and look, it's probably a case of it's either base wage or you don't play at all. And mm. I think that's a fair enough situation. And I think he'd probably take that. Um, I think he, he's still got a hunger for it. Clearly, there's issues with the body in it and it can't be trusted. And that is unfortunate, particularly when you look at, obviously, we get Hanabry off Sydney and then Sydney get McCartan off us. And he, not, not in the same deal, but, but he obviously becomes a miracle and will probably be all Australian. But um, obviously more of that a little bit later on. It's a, it's a reasonable segue into the votes because I gave Hanabry one, um, could have given him two. Um, thought he was hugely influential, didn't waste a disposal, um, you know, in and under 27 disposals. I thought the only midfielder we had that played better than him was Brad Crouch. Um, and it was only just, I mean, Steele was pretty good, but, but Crouch... I gave him two votes. I thought his influence, particularly in the first half, I thought Steele and Crouch just blitzed the clearances early in the game. Uh, but best on ground by a street was um, was Rowan Marshall, um, you know, to get 30 touches as a ruckman, 21 of them kicks, nine marks, 35 hitouts, something like 11 clearances. Um, you can't play much better than that as a ruckman. And uh, we'll have a lot of conversations later in the year. And, and obviously one of them will be around what our best ruck situation is. And that is a fascinating dilemma. The um, Paddy Ryder, the best tap ruckman we've almost ever had. I know that's probably a big call, but um, Rowan Marshall is clearly a, a, at his very, very best when he's the main man. Um, and he can never replicate that when he's got another ruckman and he's not alone in that space. But it's it's a fascinating dilemma for, for us going forward. But but Michael, how did you uh, how did you say it? Um, similar similar to you, Parco. I gave some some quick mentions to Dan Hanbury for all the for all the reasons we've we've touched on now. Uh, Seb Ross, he's um, Nick. You mentioned earlier about Callum Wilkie taking his game to the next level. I don't think I think the preseason not too many people had Seb Ross in our best twenty two, and now he's I think he's relishing the fact that he's not carrying the midfield with Spot Jack Stephen, like he mm. did, you know, in those two years that he won his two best and fairest. Um, I thought he was terrific. Ben Long, I gave a mention to. He, he's the one bloke, he gets the footy straight away. You look at his eyes. He's looking around. He's choosing options. He's not taking four steps back and looking down the line straight away. He's, his eyes dart everywhere. He's looking for good options. Um, and I gave a quick mention to, to Mitch Owens as well. Um, his hands in close are something pretty. I think he's going to be a really special footballer, yeah. Mitch Owens. His hands in close led to those led to the Membry goal, the Hanbury goal. Um, he's just a really smart footballer. I've I've watched him with Sandy, you know, and when he when he came back, and they've been playing him out of the goal square um, as well, sort of across half forward and and the midfielder. And he's just he's smart when he when he's forward at, at VFL level. He's just got time and he's a very very clever footballer but i gave one vote to jack sinclair um i thought in the absence of dukes he stepped up he's the he's the general of the defense now he um he looks he's always looking to sort of move the the ball on he brings other players into the play um just constructive footballer two i gave to brad crouch you know nine clearances 30 possessions he um he was our best our best midfielder and three, obviously, to Ryan Marshall, 465 metres gain for a Ruckman um, to go with the 30 possessions and 35 hitouts. And, you know, I, um, you know, it wasn't a massive, um, Hawthorne didn't have a massive Ruck duo 
to put against him, but you can only play against the blokes they put on you. Um, and Rowan's clearly best on ground and a huge part of our dominance, you know, for the first three quarters of the game. Yeah, I've gone very similar. I did want to give a mention to Jack Steele and Cooper Sharman as well. I thought that they were both very good. Uh, I think we, we haven't seen the best of, of Jack Steele this season, despite him having 40 last week. Uh, it certainly wasn't the best game of his career in terms of impact. Um, but uh, Tim Embry, uh, for, for similar reasons, Mason Wood, Mitch Owens, Max King gets an honourable mention because if, if he could make it happen, he can be a very special player. But I gave one vote to Brad Crouch, uh, 30 touches, 11 tackles and nine clearances. I mean, that is, that is beast mode for a, 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 a ruck rover, essentially, or a, a rover as you know, what our, I guess our, our guest this week would have, would have been known as. Uh, but nine score involvements, five inside 50s and a goal as well. Um, really impactful performance from, from Brad Crouch. I think he's had a super year. Yeah. Um, I think he's probably underrated, probably still around the competition. But he's had a super year. I gave two votes to Seb Ross, Mick, for, for all of those reasons that you mentioned. I thought that he was our most effective midfielder inside and out. 26 touches, seven tackles, seven score involvements, four clearances and a goal at 80% disposal efficiency. And the fact that he was able to finish off that passage of play that should have had the Benny Hill theme song playing behind (laughs) it in the goal square um, probably deserved a a drum roll and a a big, you know, cinematic finish or something that, that that was the, the hardest part of that entire passage of play. And he was able to finish it off, but you're right. I think this has been his, his best year for a number of years. Um, And probably as a whole, as a player, he's probably a better player now and able to impact more Definitely. than when he won those best and fairest mm-hmm. because he's got the ability around him as well. And, and I really wonder kind of what Jack Stephen could have done if he'd had a similar yeah. team around him yeah. to, to what Seb has now and, and what difference that could have made to his career. But, I mean, Rowan Marshall was so far ahead of everybody else for, for best on ground, 30 touches for a Ruckman, 35 hitouts. 10 intercepts, nine score involvements, seven tackles of his own, seven clearance, five inside 50s. And like you said, Mick, 465 metres gained for a, for a ruckman around the ground is, is almost unheard of. And you're right, Parko, I think Rowan Marshall has proven that when he plays one out, when he's the singular sole ruckman, he's a far better player than when he's playing as the second ruckman to a tap ruckman like a, a rider how that fits within the team dynamic and the team structure, I still don't know because yeah. he's a far better player when he plays one out, but the team seems to play better and structure up Correct. better. When what makes good. us better overall. So yeah. you kind of, you know, robbing Peter to pay mm. Paul and, and ultimately you do what's best for the team. But Rowan Marshall, when he's, when he's on, I mean, he's on and he's a yeah. real, real good player. It, it's probably in reality still having both of them, but yeah. it depends. Is it Ryder plus a six out of ten Marshall, or a, or a nine out of ten Marshall with a pinch hitting Ruckman? Well, it, um, it also, yeah. I mean, it also potentially makes decisions a little bit easier moving forward. In that we know that Rowan Marshall can be that number one Ruck if we yeah. give him that role moving forward. And I think it's been nice to see. I think we were all a little bit worried, knowing the, that his impact has been, I guess, diminished a little bit playing behind Paddy as that number two ruck, the kind of combo ruck forward. Um, his, his ruck influence has been diminished a little bit, but it's, so it's, it's nice to see him kind of dominate for a couple of weeks as the number one ruck. And Definitely. it gives you that confidence moving forward that if Paddy does decide to hang it up, whenever that is at the end of this year, next year, whatever, that you know, Rowan's ready to step up and be and be the man. He seems like he his role is more defined 
when he's mm-hmm. the sole ruckman. He knows mm-hmm. he goes out there knowing what his role is going to be. Whereas yeah. when Paddy's playing, his role changes depending on where you know whether Paddy's takes a centre bounce or whether whether he does. His roles change. Or he seems he seems better when he's got just that sole. You know, he takes eighty five percent of the hit outs. Um, he just seems. I was going to say more focused, but I'm not sure if that's the right phrase. But he just seems a better player when he's just got mm. that more singular role. We saw well, that earlier in the year against the Gold Coast when Ryder got suspended. Now, obviously, Marshall got injured the next game against the Giants, but his influence against Wits in the Gold Coast game was pivotal to us winning that match as well. Well, one of his one of the, the features of his game is his running power, right? Mm. His ability mm. to get around the ground. And he's he's really impactful as a almost mm. as an extra midfielder. And and we know he's not the same sort of Ruckman as, say, a Nick Nat uh, type mm. of Ruckman, but similar ability to influence around the ground as another running midfielder almost. And we know that he can impact on the scoreboard when he plays forward, but a little bit like we saw with, with Jack Hayes early in the season, his ability as a big man to get across the ground really well, be agile, be mobile and impact at ground level, but then also push forward and impact at, at, at forward, you know, in, inside 50, but also, and that's what I think Rowan has over someone like Jack Hayes to actually dominate ruck contests. And we know that the ruck hasn't been Hawthorne's strong point or West Coast's strong point this year. Uh, but I think he's shown enough that we can we can head into the future confident that Rowan Marshall can be a number one ruckman. And it's still an area where you can get Geelong potentially. I mean, they don't have a lot of weaknesses, but you can get them there potentially. So we'll, uh, we'll obviously see that. That'll be next up for us. But before we do that, we're going to catch up with a very underrated St Kilda player, a ball magnet, a prolific uh, winner of the footy throughout his career. Played over 100 games for the club as one of the smallest men in the history of the AFL. I speak of Paul Callery. Gets it to Saru, play is allowed to go on. Over here to Mildenhall, who marks. Mildenhall to Neil, is good football. Neil leading up the ground. Hunt in there, Saran Curry threads his way through and beats another one. Well, our next guest uh, was very much a voice of my childhood and a lot of the around the grounds radio coverage, but he was also a very fine player. Played 182 games, but 105 of them with the Saints starting in 1974 and going through until 1980 with the club. When he crossed over to South Melbourne back when he could be on two lists in the same year, how uh, times have changed. But Paul, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us on the program. It's my pleasure, boys. Anything to do with the Saints, I'm very happy to be involved with. Now, can we start off with, with how you got there? Obviously, you, you spent four years at Melbourne, during which time St Kilda played the finals every year. You then arrived at the Saints, unfortunately, as time changed. But but how did you how did you get there? Well, what happened is a fellow called Ian Ridley. I don't know whether you, you boys are very young, but yep. Ian Ridley was a coach and then a president. He gave him my chance in uh, football when he was coaching at Melbourne. And so I, pl- all, I played every game at Melbourne under him. And... Um, they sacked him after my fourth year and I actually walked out in the club and, and unbelievably that year I played two very good games against the Saints and so Alan Jeans then wanted to recruit me uh, and get me down to the Saints. Uh, the Saints had been in the finals but I'm not quite sure it's an association or causal but when I got there we won no more finals or didn't even make the finals uh, but I loved every minute of it boys I can assure you of that. So 
Paul, what was it like, I guess, moving from that that Melbourne team who historically, yeah, they'd won premierships. There'd been a bucket load of premierships over the journey. But what was it like then coming to Moorabbin where there was just the one in 66 and, and I guess that lack of lack of success in history? Yeah, and look, um, I'm, I really feel for the other boys that have been involved for so long there. Um, and now having been at Melbourne as well, it was exciting that they won last year. Uh, the Saints won't, I don't think they'll do it this year, but they're getting better. I think they're getting better. Um, it's been a huge time. I know a lot of Saints supporters, and because my two boys, Barrick, Nick Barrick for the Saints, um, I go follow the Saints, but I, I'm, I'm very involved with all the former players with um, both clubs, St Kilda and Melbourne, and I love it. But I just would cherish the moment the Saints, and for you people like yourself, even at Melbourne last year, I was more, I was more, much more happy for the fact that these supporters have been there for so many years. Eventually, uh, had the success that they're dying for, and and the Saints people that I know are exactly the same. So um, I'm not quite sure to answer the question, mate, but I just did my best. <laughs> I um was doing the research for this. Well, I was about to ask whether, you know, with your time not quite evenly split with the Saints and the Demons, where your loyalties lay alive, but I think you've pretty much answered that question for us. Yeah. I I did notice that one day um, in 74 in a game against South Melbourne at Moorabbin, you had 41 disposals and kicked four goals. Now, in 1974, you know, for those of us who are old enough to have watched footy back then, Footy was a different game. You, there was no cheap chipping around the half back line for cheap ones. You know, forty-one possessions is a um, was an amazing achievement for back in those days. Look, and, and I, I, I thank you, Michael. I appreciate the stat, um, and I would hope that the forty-one possessions are probably a little bit better than what they were in in uh, at the moment because uh, there's so many possessions that are important. Possession and possessions they stop the opposition from getting the ball. Um, but sometimes, and I would love to see the Saints even go home quicker rather than going sideways a lot because it slows the play down. I'd love to get the ball chaos style down a big king and, and don't kick good drop punts to him, but actually put them in front. It's not even asking the question, by the way, but um, uh, that, that's my three. Get Kingy in front and going for big mongrel punts as opposed to that's which is predictable for the back line. So 41 possessions, a lot of them wouldn't be much further than 35 metres, by the way, Michael. Um, <laughs> had I been instructed to play yet like yesterday, yes, year like now, I wouldn't really handball all the time because my kicking wasn't long. But I could get the ball because I was in and under. And when you had played with big Carl Dittrich or Cowboy Neil, you didn't mind going in and under because they would protect you. And um, so I think one of those kicks in one of those games in 74 is John Suck, if you won't even remember, he was an umpire and the muddy ground was so, so bad. The ball was bounced down on the ground and it stuck in the mud. <laughs> and I ripped in and picked it up and they called play on. So I got one knockout in my life and that was it. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you were you were a rover. I mean, you were a, a, an old-fashioned midfielder, what you'd call a midfielder in today's game, but you were a goal-kicking midfielder. You topped Melbourne's goal-kicking in 71. How did you, like like Michael said, I mean, it was a very different game, but how did you manage to 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 win the ball in the, in the centre, in the middle of the ground, and go forward and, and kick as many as you did? Well, Nick, I think I was I was reasonably quick and I was strong, but I always played front and centre, even in those days. We didn't call it front and centre those days. It was just called get in front of the pack and the backs are going to punch it down. And uh, and I played many games in MCG. It was a great game ground to play on. And um, so I um, got there and kicked the goals. And, um, uh, well, it was just one of those things that I did. And um, 
I think I'm not quite sure how many goals I kicked now, but I think it was over nearly a couple of hundred uh, in my game. So uh, I would average one a game or one and a half a game or something. Kicked exactly 200 goals in your career. And uh, on the, out of those 41 possessions that Michael mentioned, 34 of them were kicks. And you sold yourself a little short. Champion Data accredited you with seven hit-outs in your career. So uh, <laughs> they, they were actually obviously able to find a few more. But there was an incident in, in 1976 where St Kilda went on to beat the eventual Premier's Hawthorne at Princess Park. Um, came from a long way down. And as I understand, he got knocked out just before half time, And I think it was friendly fire but St Kilda actually used it as a motivational factor saying, oh, look what they've done to one of our boys. You better get up now. Is that sort of your recollections, if you have any of that day? Well, I have no recollections of the day, but I can tell you, as it was reported, you are exactly right. <laughs> um, and Alan Jeans was never forgiven by John Kennedy because I was playing on Lee Matthews that day and he was playing very well. And, and Jeans, he said a quarter time to Gary Colling and a couple of the big blokes, You've got to take Matthews out. And you could do that in those days. And I'm actually telling anything out, out of school here. It was able to be done. And Gigi said, you've got to take him out. So with about five, 10 minutes into the, into the quarter, second quarter, Gary Collins come through at a centre bounce and gone to knock him out. Or not, not knock him out, just bump him out, if you like. But indeed, with his elbow, he knocked me to kingdom come. So <laughs> I, I was concussed. I swallowed my, my tongue. I was supposedly dead. Uh, because when you swallow your tongue, um, you're sort of asphyxiated and um, there's only one way to re-trigger your tongue. It's just to tilt the head back, a simple thing. But the trainers in those days didn't realise that. And so what happened is it was over three minutes. So I was without oxygen, supposedly, for three more than three minutes. But the doctor came out and realised what the situation, and he re-triggered my tongue, but I was knocked out. And uh, then at half-time, Alan Jeans got up in a chair, supposedly, in, in, the, in the rooms, and pleaded with the boys, they've tried to kill a little fella. <laughs> now, in fact, it was friendly fire by Gary Colling. And John Kennedy, the coach of the Hawks at the stage, never gave, um, he, he never forgave Alan Jeans. But Jeans, he came to visit me in hospital. And he, he hated anyone getting a lot of publicity. And it was, I, the headlines of the Herald Sun was, he was dead. My wife had just had our first child, so it wasn't all that, that exciting for them, I can assure you. But as he came to visit him, he said, oh, Paulie, and he said, Paulie, you're getting a lot of publicity here, Sonny. Um, uh, you know, laddie, you know, he said, uh, you were playing so badly, I was going to drag you anyway. <laughs> uh, I I think I read a similar account of that, that story that, that Parquet just mentioned. The, the, the version I read said that... Um, the Saints team on the day thought that Don Scott had belted you. Um, yeah. So the you know the, we I think apparently reeled in an eight goal deficit to uh, to win on the day. Said so the eventual uh, the eventual premiers. I was just going to ask whether you you have no recollection of anyone or you've never been told whether anyone squared up with Don Scott in the second half. <laughs> and, and it was amazing. Uh, as I say, I didn't remember anything, but I really was knocked out badly. And uh, for the next eight weeks or tw ten weeks. I had EEGs and uh, uh, and all my senses of taste and smell were totally distorted. So I didn't play for a long period of time. Uh, and to the club's credit, they never allowed me to play because everything was askew. And uh, it made, made, I was a very sick person, in fact. Uh, but Jeansy Jeansy used it to his advantage as only Alan Jeans could do. Did, uh, I mean, did, sorry, no, sorry, sorry, Mike, you go. Um, I just noticed you. I'm a bit older than boys, these boys, so I actually got to watch you play. Um, 
I watched you with Melbourne. My dad was a Melbourne supporter and we used to go to St Kilda Melbourne games in the early 70s. So yep. um, dad went to school with one of the coordinates, so he became a Melbourne fan. So I used to watch you play for the Ds with, you know, um, was it Greg Park and Ray Biffin and blokes like that. Yeah. Um, but when you, you famously wore number 35, which you carried on uh, when you joined St Kilda, um, but then your last year at St Kilda, I believe you changed to number 49. Yeah, that last two or three games. I'm just wondering why, and um, maybe you could take us through sort of your end of your time at St Kilda and what happened in 1989. Yeah, look, it was funny. Um, not funny, it was disappointing. In fact, uh, I would love to play 200 games, but Alex Jezelinko came to the club, and Jezza flew down in a helicopter that night, and we all did tough training and in the mud training, and you got to build, do this, and do this, and that. And I played three games under Jezza, and, and I decided to retire because. I, I was a phys ed teacher and had three kids at that stage. Um, and so Jesse said to me, Paulie, you've got to, and he was fair to me, he said, you've got to train every night of the week. Well, I said, I can't do that with a family and, and kids and whatever it might be. Um, so I did retire, uh, but I, I knew I was gone. I couldn't run another 400 pre-season training. Running 400 is my little legs. It nearly killed me. Uh, even Big Cowboy would never be with me at the start, but he'd always be passing me at the other end of the finish line. Um, so I had decided to retire. So I missed out on, uh, well, I wore number 35 because a fellow, I was, Geelong was my club, my team. And Billy Goggin, you may remember him, or you don't remember him, but he was a great player and a rover for the Cats. He wore 35. So when I went to um, uh, play at Melbourne, I asked for 35. And then when I went to the Saints, they gave me 35. But you won't believe, you may not know this, boys, but on the locker, anyone who plays 100 games or more actually has their name on the locker. Now, this is a, it's a great honour to me because, in fact, on the locker, and I had a photo with um, Jack Sinclair recently, and I've had one with Robbie Harvey as well, but my name is above Robbie Harvey's. Now, how good is that? Uh, the great champion of the club, and uh, and Jack Sinclair is a terrific player, and he's played more games. But to me, it's a great honour for me. Why I wore 49 at the Swans? Because they had to give me something, and I only played one game for the Swans. I had three kicks, two in the head and one in the backside. So it wasn't <laughs> I retired immediately again. <laughs> Do you do you feel a connection with with others who have worn that jumper since or or before I guess like do you, do you have that sort of connection with those who have worn 35? Oh absolutely uh, and I've been I've been asked to present the number 35 and even going back and you you won't even know this but I was at a funeral during the week huge funeral for a fellow called Noel McMahon at the Melbourne Football Club. Now he was a football he was a fantastic player I didn't realize how good he was but when I saw the film footage he was a great player. And he wore 35. And I didn't realise at the time, but he took me under his wing. He was a tough, hard man. Um, and he, so we do have a, an empathy for one another with the number 35. Another big man at, at um, Melbourne who wore it was a fellow called Steve Smith, the ex-president um, uh, of the um, Melbourne, Melbourne Cricket Club. Um, and he wore number 35. So people are very bemused when they take a photo and he and I together because I'm up his armpit and uh, they need to get a long lens, I think, to get us both in. Um, so 49 was just given to me. It was an abject failure, but I, I hadn't trained for eight weeks. And Ian Stewart, who was a coach at the time of the Swans, he put me in uh, after one night's training and it was just not, not his fault. I just couldn't do it. So again, I retired. 
1978, should St Kilda have uh, made more of that season? You obviously came back in late in the year and we won four or five in a row, but we, we lost our way badly in the middle stages of the year. There's a lot of people that feel we could have actually given it a shake that year. Oh, look, there is no doubt about that. That was under Mike Patterson, wasn't it? Yeah. If you're right, yeah. And Big Pato was a unique coach, um, but he blooded fellas like Graham Jelly. Now, that was to my disadvantage, in fact, uh, because Graham Jelly was a great ball getter, but he handballed the ball out wide. He went in and under and got the ball out wide to the running players. And Rossi Smith is a great friend of mine. We often talk about that. And we played in another era. That's what we would have done as well. But we got too far behind and then we got a run up and momentum's everything. But when you can't eventually make it, the momentum dies and you actually don't get there. Um, but we had some great players and um, fellows like Trevor Barker and, and those sorts of characters. Wow, how inspirational were they? I actually took this as another story, if you don't mind me telling. I was playing at the Saints and um, I was playing pretty well in whatever year it was and Barks actually finished second in a Brownlow medal, medal that year. And I, I took Barks into the Brownlow medal and put it under my wing and um, my little VW Beetle and got into the Southern Cross Hotel. Well, Barks, I took him there, but I've got no idea how he got home and when he got home. <laughs> Paul, just just quickly, want to go back to that that game in uh, in '76 against the Hawks. Obviously, you don't have any any memory of of that game anymore. But in your travels and trails since football, I mean, do you catch up with some of those Hawks players? And like, do you have a you have a beer and kind of talk about that moment and and anything that they remember? Yeah, look, and 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 we and we catch up so many times. Look, I've got to say, the AFL are magnificent to people like me and former players. And I meet, meet a lot of Hawthorne people. And we are just like you, the three of you and myself. We just we have a chat all the time, and you forget about those sorts of things. But they do remember that particular story. Now I don't know if you remember the name of a fellow called Alan Martello Hawthorne. He knocked me out three times, not intensely, but I was running behind him to try and tackle him, and his big bony elbows hit me straight where to think in the head, knocked me out. So I was knocked out three times, and we laugh about those things now. People say to me, Paul, how have you been affected by um, concussions and things like that? And I had 10 serious ones. And I say to people, well, look, I think I'm all right, but you will be the better judges than me because I don't really honestly know. Um, but I do feel pretty good. And uh, I've worked as an academic for 41 years at a place called the Australian Catholic University, started a sports science course there. And um, uh, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good touch wood at this stage. The, the AFL probably wouldn't let you play again after, after 10. I think the... The, the rule is nine. If you've had nine, you have to get a medical retirement, I think, for, from nine concussions. So you haven't had any kind of, I guess, adverse effects since, since football? Look, I've been asked if I want to respond to the request as far as the concussions are concerned. Um, but because I actually feel pretty good uh, and I think that I would rather leave the people who don't feel well now to try and take advantage of that. And again, I say the AFL, and I'm not trying to push up their, their cause, but um, to former players, we have great days together of all clubs. They look after our medical expenses that could have been uh, football-related. Uh, not that I, again, had to take advantage of those, fortunately, because that's the, with the situation I'm in at the moment. But if I had to, um, whether it be dental, whether it be concussion, whether it be broken arms, legs, um, the AFL are, are magnificent in looking after us. Yeah, I was just going to ask briefly, as uh, the last one from me, just an extension for what Nick was saying. Um, you know, you touched on the concussions that you did have during your career. 
I was just interested to how the AFL, VFL back then dealt with concussions, you know, with an amount of severity than obviously the, the fantastic um, protocols and the care that they take now. How, how different was it back in those days? Oh, well, uh, I know. And under my great friend, Rossi Smith, he was coaching and I got knocked out one time at um, AF or VFL Park in those days. Um, I had been playing pretty well and he wanted to get me back in the ground and I was knocked out. As soon as I was conscious, they put me back on. And I know I remember just running around in a daze, but we didn't know in those days. Uh, so I'm not even having, not having a go at anyone because there were different, the protocols now are magnificent and they're there to protect everyone and including AFL because we've got to be seen to be doing the right thing. Um, uh, and I know some players, not a lot, but really have got long-term consequences for being concussed. I was the first to wear a helmet, in fact. Uh, I wore an old-time bike bike helmet that the racing uh, riders used to use, a leather bike helmet, and I actually taped a belt, strong belt, around what I where I thought was on the, if I was going to get concussed, in the side of the head or in the front of the temple. And um, I was never knocked out again. So having been knocked out 10 times, now it's only a case of one. However, I still believe that that belt, a belt around the actual bike helmet, at least would have absorbed some of the knock. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way I can explain it to people are two ways. When you sit down on a seat, if you sit on a hard seat, or then you sit on a cushion seat, it's much better to sit on a cushion seat because it absorbs a lot of the force. I have done no, and I, I come from an academic background, but I've never done any study on this area, by the way. But I say to them, you hit a driver in, in, a, of a, in playing golf, you're a golfer. You hit the driver and then hit it with a wood cover on. What happens when the wood cover's on? It absorbs a lot of the shock. I know the, the brains and the neurons rattle around inside your head, but maybe not as severely. So. Um, the evidence doesn't come out from a scientific perspective, but I'd love to see more study being done. It makes sense. It certainly it makes sense. sense. Yeah. Um, your, your post-football career, you mentioned academically, but also you spent a lot of time in, in radio and, and stayed in footy. So obviously your passion remained all the way through. Can you take, sort of take us through your media career? Look, you, I, I was never a media person like you, you blokes are. Uh, I just was uh, someone who was reasonably well known at the stage and they wanted people to go to around the grounds. And then they, they used to call, because I was an academic, they called me and I have a PhD, they called me uh, the doc uh, <laughs> because I would analyze the statistics. Well, in actual fact, on the radio, I would make up a lot of statistics because <laughs> no one would see them. So at the end of the game, they go to me, now, Paulie, what's the, um, or doc, what's the, who's got how many of these possessions? I had a pretty good idea what they were, but I wouldn't, they weren't exact, so I'd sort of make them up, in fact. I wasn't <laughs> deceiving anyone. But we were a sole um, statistician with two teams with big spreadsheets trying to fill them in with different texticolours and then analyse them halfway through the game. So, um, look, I got involved from that perspective and I, and I did love it. I worked with the doyens as far as I'm concerned, like Drew Morford and, and um, uh, uh, oh, he's gone now to um, uh, Drew Morford and also Tim Lane. Uh, these are great ABC men that have gone now to other stations, or Drew's unfortunately passed on. Um, and to watch those fellows, I can tell a little story about Drew Morford. If you were speaking to him in public, uh, you, you know that name, Drew Morford? Yeah, I've worked with him. He's a very, very funny man. A very funny man. Now, when he wasn't on air, he would swear like that's a right. And, <laughs> and, uh, and I'd say to him off air, 
um, when there'll be a break, we didn't go to ads on the ABC, of course, but they do a promo. And I say, Drew, how is it you don't swear when you're on, on the radio? He said, well, the ABC is like my grandma. I never swear in front of my grandma. And that's how he analysed it. So he was always on his best behaviour on air, but off air, wow, could he swear like a trooper? There's a YouTube video, Nick, before I let you in, where it's um, they've got like a, a, a post-game raw footage. It's Drew Morford and Sandy Roberts on Channel 7. And uh, yeah. you get a bit of Drew's personality in that where he's just joking around with Sandy about around the grounds and he drops the magic a bit in that. But, yeah, he could swear like, um, swear like the best of them. Yeah, he could indeed, yes. Now, before we let you go, I have to ask you about one of the greatest moustaches in VFL, AFL history. Uh, obviously, you look at some footage and the pictures of you in the, the early to mid-70s, you know, clean yeah. shaven, beautiful locks. But then later on, you know, towards the end of your career, 1980, look at your, your footy card from 1980, and you've got this big, bushy moustache. How did that How did that come about? Well, it was a time, at the time, there were fellas, like, even Big Carl, had, had a moustache, didn't have much hair on his head in those days. But a fellow called Jeff Saru, we were like amigos, you know, gringos from the south. Uh, we all had greasy black hair. Uh, contrary to the Barker, they, they all thought some killer players were blondies. Well, a lot of us had black, greasy hair. Um, and, and Neil Bazanko, Bruce Duperuzel, uh, you run through them all. We all had those moustaches. And um, uh, we all, but in those days, we used to have a professional hairdresser too. I can't recall his name, but he's down in Brighton. And he would perm our hairs and he would colour our hairs and God only knows what. Uh, all, all in the best interest of football, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, we did it. So the moustache, yes, I used, I did that. Um, but I haven't had a moustache for a long period of time. No, I have a beard. Oh, boys, you, you, I look older than what I actually am as well. <laughs> Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for, for sharing the, the journey with us. You're a great contributor to the club. And, and as we say, that affinity in the number 35, for us growing up, obviously, we saw Robert Harvey as a superstar, but the, the 35 superstars started at least a generation before that. So uh, so thank you very much for uh, for jumping on with us. Boys, it's been my pleasure and it's an honour. And uh, I, at my size, just to have played football, people say, how'd you do it? Well, I didn't know any different, but I just know to play for the Saints and, Mel and Melbourne as well. It was a great honour, and I still see people. I drive a community bus around the Bayside, at the, uh, picking up elderly people and taking them from their homes on outings a couple of days a week, and I love it. And they still remember a little old bloke like myself, uh, which is great. So, boys, I appreciate you asking me to do it. And go Saints. Stood at 165 centimetres, Paul Callery, and a good conversation about concussion too. I remember as recently as 2005, I probably mentioned it on the podcast, playing a, a game of footy where one of my teammates got knocked out completely cold. So knocked out cold, carried off on a stretcher. We had three or four blokes go down with injury in the next sort of 20 minutes or so, and he came back on the ground wearing a helmet uh, and played the second half in a helmet, having practically been put in an ambulance uh, half an hour earlier. It was unheard of, and obviously that the game has developed to a fair way since then but um yeah it's uh good to hear he's doing okay despite the uh the, the 10 uh, serious concussions that he copped over the journey uh that the changes obviously geelong have rested joel selwood now um obviously they've got the luxury of doing that being a game and percentage clear on top of the ladder and he is a veteran we know 350th last week um thankfully that's not this week because Geelong never lose milestone games but um so it, it would have been so St Kilda for that to actually fall on this game for them to rest him last week and play him this week but thankfully it didn't happen so he's out and, and look that's he's a, he's a superstar so not having him in their side is useful uh Reece Stanley comes back in for them he'll replace uh, Segler who I forgot was still playing AFL, but um, he is. Um, for us, 
uh, we bring back Dougal Howard, which is quite timely given the two gorillas that Geelong have in the forward line in, in Cameron and Hawkins that we have to contend with. Um, most of our defenders are interceptors, so to, to get the bigger body in there is crucial. Uh, Jared Lynott goes out, which which obviously then begs the question as to who relieves Marshall in the ruck. You would assume Cooper Sharman would probably end up being that player now. Um, and obviously Burns, who was the sub, uh, is rested. So, well, not rested, but, but sent back to, to Sandy. So, uh, they're the changes. So the, the way I see it is, is clearly it's a, it's a tricky game. I've liked the commentary coming out of St Kilda this week. I sort of sense that even looking at some of the videos, they seem a bit more relaxed than the, the I guess, the tense team of the last couple of weeks they the words they're saying are spot on they're saying look they're you know you've got to be able to get them we, we were the last team to beat them that we understand that it's a tricky task but we understand the importance of it and it makes me feel like we'll, we'll have a fair crack like whether we're good enough time will tell and on the evidence of the last seven or eight weeks you would severely question that but uh, at our best, we're the last team to have beaten them this year and we beat them by steamrolling them in, in half a game. And I would argue we've played well against them three times in a row. We should have beaten them twice last year. Um, they're probably a little bit better now than they were then. And I think they're clearly the premiership favourites. But it's not impossible that the fact that it's at Cadinia Park and they don't lose down there all that often, that they, they were beaten by Freo there this year and they were pushed by Brisbane. Um, I'm not going to pretend that it's it's any easier than it appears to be on paper but i just get a feeling we'll, we'll have a crack we'll, we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll be up we'll be around the mark we'll, we'll have a dip and dare we say it if uh, if lady luck who who doesn't know where moravin is but if lady luck is on our side we, we might be a chance to uh to, to maybe cause a boil over and, and we've got to look at it that way we're in the eight and it's at the moment it's it's our spot for other teams to come and take off us. And if we beat Geelong, they're not getting it. It's that's, that's the opportunity right. that, that sits in yeah. front of us. So if we have a Saturday where Fremantle beats the Bulldogs, Port Adelaide beats Richmond, and we beat Geelong, game set and match. So yeah. so that's the the opportunity that sits in front of us for us. And even if those results don't happen, so you got to love and embrace these challenges. They've only won four more games than us this year. It's not as if they're in a different atmosphere. Um, so, so we've got to look at it that way. Ten in a row, due to drop one, we're capable. We've beaten them this year. Bring it on. They're, they're, I mean, let, let's not make any bones about it. They're the form, the form team in the comp. They've, they've won 10 or 11 straight, right? And, and but you're right, we're, we're the last team to beat them. And, and we've played well against them for three or four times straight. Mm. And you're, I, I think you're spot on that we should have beaten them twice last year. And, and so realistically, we should go into this game with zero fear. We should go into this game full of... Uh, optimism that actually we, we match up pretty well against this mob. And regardless of the results last year that we didn't actually get the chocolates, we actually should have beaten them if it wasn't for some, uh, we beat ourselves both Max of those King times. Going down in the second game. Yeah. I, I think we, I think we beat ourselves both, both yeah. of those yeah. days. And, and you know, the reality is that, that we can beat them if we do the right things. And, and we've, we've done the right things 90% of the time against Geelong the last three or four times we've played them. We just haven't been able to finish it off in a few of them. And um, you know, I, I don't think that we should be scared of this mob. I, I think they're a good team. I don't think they're the greatest Geelong team we've ever seen. I, I, I'm not sure they're even the best team in the competition. I think they're the form team in the comp. I'm not sure that they're, the, they're the best team in the comp and rightly so they're, they're premiership favorites uh, given the, the streak. But, you know, I think if, if you had to pick a full strength at, at full form Melbourne, you know, fit and healthy, playing the right way that Melbourne want to play against a, a fit and healthy Geelong playing the way that they want to play. On the MCG, I'm going Melbourne 10 out of 10 times. 
as the better team. But that being said, Melbourne haven't been doing that for the last six weeks or eight weeks, whatever, and Geelong have. So, you know, it, it's it's much of a muchness. But I, I think that we have to go in this in this game believing 100% that we can we can win. Yeah, I um, agree with all of that, guys. Um, look, it's it's kind of Geelong's game to lose, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're going to start clear favourites. It's on their home deck that they we haven't beaten them since forever. So we can just go, as you said, no fear. We can just go in there and have a red-hot crack um, and see what happens. And I think, as my memory serves me, we kicked the first five down yep. there last and then yeah, King last... then King got injured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, it's it's not impossible, as you said. We've dodged the Selwood game by week, which we did for his three hundredth. I think we dodged that yeah. week, and, and then probably was... still lost anyway. Yeah, <laughs> Selwood, Gary Ablett double. Yeah, that went last time. So so we've dodged that. My my fear, as it tends to be at the moment, always is as as Nick said. You know, we'll have a crack. We'll it's the finishing. Yeah. It's the finishing. We can't afford for Max to kick two goals six. We can't afford to let Tom Stewart have, you know, 17 intercept marks, mm. um, which he tends to do against us, especially down there. You put Sharman on him, Michael, because he yes. we did that last time. We so. did indeed. We did indeed. Yeah. So that's that's an option as, as as well. But Sharman could also be useful as in that third main up role with yeah. you know, with Cameron and, and, and Hawkins down there. I, th- I thought he was magnificent last week in that yeah. third main up role. Just a shame with the with the um the ruck stoppages now that you can't do that anymore because he uh he would have been oh, an option, option yeah. he, he's athletic, he's got a spring, he's gonna he's having a crack at taking mark of the year every week. Um but yeah, that's that's definitely an option as well. But look. We've got. We've just got to make the most of our opportunities. We we can't dominate them for a quarter and be two goals six yeah. a quarter time you, because we just know that that's you know we're not we're not going to dominate them in general play in the midfield for four quarters. Um, so we've just got to take our opportunities. That's what it boils down to. It's been it's been nearly twenty five years since the last time we beat them down there. Were you guys there? I, I was there. Do you guys remember that that game? I, I wasn't there. I'd played footy that day, and I was listening to it on the radio. And it's one of the more memorable home and away wins we, we've really had in a long time. We Robert Harvey got effectively brutalised on the halftime siren. Mm-hmm. Um, he then dominated the second half. We were four and a half goals down, kicking against the breeze in the last mm-hmm. quarter and kicked six in a row. It was a, an outstanding win, and then. The next week we stopped dead in our tracks and that was season over. But um, it was it was yeah. the bigs, it was the bigs that did it as well. It was Barry Hall, it was Spider, it was Stewie yeah. Lowe, all kind of you know big marks, kicking big goals when when they do it in that last quarter. It was yeah. it was just amazing to watch. Yeah. No, my my last time down there was um, I think I've only I think I've actually only been to two home to maybe three home and away games down there. Last time I was there, Barry Hall had a brain fade <laughs> just before half time. I think you know he. He belted, oh, I'm trying to think. It was one of the Geelong, my mind's telling me it might have been a young, very young Jimmy Bartell, but I've been told that um, the timelines don't match up. But I remember the runner, you know, having doing the dragging him off the ground and we got flogged and it's a it's a terrible, awful long way back from Geelong when you get belted. Oh, it is. I've been there I, twice I, as a spectator. And, rational and yeah. you know, <laughs> Twice oh. as a spectator and twice for work. I was there in 02 in Del Sano's debut and we lost by 120. And I was there the final round of the la- the next year in 03 when we'd won four or five in a row and then they beat us in the last game. Again, had their fans getting stuck into us. So I worked a few years ago when Geelong beat us by nearly 100 there. It would have been about 2013-ish. And then um, 
Richo's last game as coach, I was working on the boundary, trying to bite my tongue with a very loud Geelong supporter behind me. That we're in front at halftime, and they couldn't cop that. They, uh, it was a complete mix-up of what the day was supposed to be like, because they were supposed to kill us, and and they weren't. And they were getting very, very, very antsy. So um, hopefully, they get very, very, very antsy this week as well. That one in that one in O three. That that one in O three will. I have some vague memories of that. Were, were we up for most of the first uh, half there? Yeah, and, yeah. And Bakes they, they was killing us. Ablett or something. Yep. And then, ba- I don't know, Bakes did a hammy or something, something in the second like half. That, and yeah. then Ablett went nuts. And they, yeah, and they well, Three they or four goals up, I think. And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. I think that was the last time I was there. Yeah. was that game. Yeah. three, I think, yeah. It's not a great place to watch footy. It's not. <laughs> it's not a, not a great place to be in general. Yeah. So, so to the, the hundred Saints fans that they let in down there, um, <laughs> we wish you well uh, for, for that venture. But um, just make the four points all the sweeter. But, yeah, I agree with those sentiments. We, we've just got to be efficient. We, we need a bit of luck to go our way. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, we've we just got to be, be very, very efficient. And we haven't been efficient for a while. But the last two weeks, most of our game has worked except that. So let's just finish that part of it off and give ourselves a chance. I mean, my message, I, I can't, you know, promise victory because that's, you know, clearly a big challenge, but I, I think we'll be all right. I just, I don't know. I just think we'll be okay. Um, it'll be better than the last couple of weeks um, in terms of our cohesion, I think. I, I don't know. Just a feeling that we'll, that we'll be okay. Um, we look ahead to some of our awards. Uh, that's so St Kilda. Uh, for me, it's the, the goal that Sebros kicked. You actually mentioned it earlier. Um I, it was one that you, it was an unbelievably good goal, probably one of the best goals he's ever kicked, but it was hard to get excited about it because of how immensely frustrating the preceding 30 seconds had been. It was a case of about seven guys tried to kick it off the ground in the square and they couldn't get through. And, and given how hard it had been for us to score, you're pulling your hair out and all of a sudden Sebros kicks a blinder. And, and the only way I could feel was, oh, finally, for fuck's sake. Uh, rather than actually being able to savour what was a very good goal. And, and to me, that, that kind of summed up what it's like to bury for us sometimes. I, remember, uh, I can't remember who it was. I th- I, it might have been Mitch Owens that, that had the ball almost at the top of the goal square and kicked yeah, it directly it into yeah. Max King's breadbasket. And I swear I heard that the thud of the kick, the, the ball hitting the boot, the ball hitting the boot, and then the thud of it hitting him in the guts and the oof as kind of almost three distinct noises. Like the kick, the the impact, and then the gasp of the of the impact. It was it was quite amazing how hard he kicked that, and just really unfortunate that King was in the way. Uh, Any of you boys I, got one? I just had my head in my hands during that whole thing. Mm-hmm. What am I watching? You know, I mean, <laughs> Beb just pulls one totally out of nowhere. I've watched that goal a few times, and he just it just hit his it, it, it hit mm. his foot so sweet. Yeah, you know, I mean, he, he was having a crack. There's no doubt about it. As soon as it hit the foot, you're like, oh, he's nailed that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It had just the right amount of curl and mm, it was lovely. That's it. Mm. Um, my and killed for this week is that whole last quarter. Mm. You know, we've touched on it earlier, but we've just had so many times we've had a chance to put sides away this year. And I know, Parco, countless times on your podcast this year, you've opened by saying, well, you know, it wasn't pretty, but we got the job. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just an, another one of those. You know, we just can't seem to bury sides when we've got them, you know, 20, 30, 40 points in front. Um, you know, I know there's been, I've read some excuses. We're a six-day week coming back from Perth, heavy ground over there, et cetera, et cetera. But they were down to three on the bench mm. in the last quarter. And their full forward was one of the bloke on the bench. Mm. So um, it was. it just seemed just another squatted opportunity to, I don't know if a percentage is going to make a big difference to us this year. We'll probably have to get it. It might. 
a yeah. game, but you know, yeah. it, it wouldn't have our percentage is so bad um compared to the sides around us. So the you know, the Bulldogs would be the side that we'd have to reel in. But gee, jumping four or five percent wouldn't have done any harm. Well, to paint a picture, we're about if you work it out, we're roughly 100 to 120 points, I think, behind both the Bulldogs and Carlson who have come back into the equation. So um, obviously if we kicked them up or they kicked four less, then, then we'd be within, say, 15 goals. And when you work that out, that's a combined margin. So Bulldogs lose by four, we win by six. That's a 10-goal swing, that type of scenario. So that the margins are getting reasonably fine. But Nick? And, and that, that one mm. with, with Carlton, I think, is one that we probably didn't see coming about Correct. a month ago yeah. in that... <clears throat> There, there is a very real possibility that they lose all three games coming Correct. up. Correct. Uh, in which case, that percentage difference could become very important because all of a sudden there's two final spots available. They could also the beat those flaky assholes in Brisbane. Too. That's true. That's <laughs> very true. That's very <laughs> true. Now, if they lose their last three, though, I'd be, I'd be <laughs> devastated. <laughs> <laughs> now, my that's so St Kilda. I don't want to open a whole can of worms because I know that there is plenty more water to go under this bridge and and we will talk about it i'm sure countless times and i'm sure that we might even have an entire episode dedicated to this subject postseason but the jordan degoe conversation the fact that we have to have this jordan exactly. degoe conversation is my that's so st kilda if you're a geelong or a richmond or a sydney you don't have this conversation Just go and get it's him. not yeah. about everything else mm. it's about go and win games of football but we are st kilda we are full of characters. We are full of larger-than-life players, the Messiah Complex, the greatest player of players of all time in our in our teams that we've never been able to win stuff. And so, you know, you talk about characters and off-field and whatever, and, and we've been burnt plenty of times, don't get me wrong, but the fact that we have to have this conversation, and I'm not giving my opinion, I think most people know my opinion by this point, uh, but the fact that we, that St Kilda, have to have this conversation when any other club that doesn't have a lack of leadership and accountability and you know, all of this sort of stuff, that is so St Kilda. Yeah, I think that's fair. As I say, I think Geelong would just be like, we want him, we'll get him, and then he'll win Norm Smith next year and, and they'll just move on with life. Whereas for us, it's all this debate about, oh, can we handle it and all this and all that? And yeah, it's it, it's very much something that only we are confronted with. Um, we, Nick, we, might yeah. actually have, we might actually have an episode dedicated yeah. to that debate well, because there are so many perspectives yeah. and, and opinions that divide the fan base. I think we could have a topic. we could have a Degoe Hanabry Ryder episode or something and <laughs> just figure out what we do with those three things. Um uh yeah the Jason Blake award Nick if you want to hold the, the continue the mic with that. Sebros Sebros I want to give an actual and an honorable mention to Mason Wood because I think he's been fantastic and doesn't get the credit for what he's done this year. But Sebros I, I think doesn't get the credit because he's won two best and fairest because he's been a leader of the footy club for a decade. Uh, and so he's kind of always been in those conversations of getting the credit when he's been due that in the past. But this year, you know, I mentioned earlier, I think that this has probably been his best year for a period of three or four years and, and probably playing better footy than when he won those best and fairest. But because he's got your, your Jack Steele and Sinclair and Crouch and Membry um, and, and a bunch of other players that are kind of taking the, the credit um, and kind of, I guess, taking the limelight when it's, when it's there, um, I think Seb Ross gets forgotten a little bit, maybe not so much by the hardcore fan base, but he, he certainly doesn't get credit across the, the competition. And I think across the majority of the fan base for the work that he's putting this year, he's, uh, he's always been known as one of the guys that, you know, will go in, will crack in and work hard, never really been particularly good disposal wise or disposal efficiency, but he, he's absolutely clean that, clean that up 
this season. He's been one of our best users by foot um, and still doing some of the hard yards, but being able to really balance that inside and outside game that he can use his running power. He can you know, burst out of a, a clearance. Uh, he can kick long and deliver inside 50. He can play on the wing. He can play in the middle. He can play on a flank. Um, he's just been really important for us. And, and I think that he deserves more credit than, uh, than he gets this year. Michael? I gave mine to Cooper Sharman this week. Mm. Um, when Cooper came to the club, you know, he played those three or four games last year, you know, set the world on fire as a forward and everyone thought he was going to be an absolute lock in our best 22 forward line this year. It didn't happen for reasons best known to those who spend a lot more time watching him train and whatever than us. Um, but earlier in the year, you know, if you watch Sandy a bit, he did play a couple of games in defence and it was pretty obvious the club wanted to make him more versatile. Um, and now he's been asked to come in and play a role down back, you know, in the absence of Dukes. Um, he obviously, it's nothing like like the like, but I thought his game this week was fantastic. He was obviously, uh, you know, he used his athleticism, which is his, um, you know, his, his strength. And he was obviously playing to instruction to, you know, spoil contests and half contests. And if you're near the boundary line, smash the ball out of bounds. Um, and I thought he did that really, really well. You know, for a bloke that's not a natural defender, um, I thought he was terrific. Uh, and mine was your honourable mention, Nick, to Mason Wood. Yeah, he's a very good year. Um, played a couple of quiet games and then obviously missed a bit of footy with injury. But, um, yeah, he's been a really solid player. Um, I thought he was our best player in the first quarter against Hawthorne. He obviously got us going. Uh, his ball use has, has improved a lot. It was a bit of a weakness. Um, lovely set shot goal that he kicked um, to, to sort of get us going. But, yeah, he's putting together a, a nice season. He's been a, a good pickup for us. I don't think he's really played too many bad games at all. Maybe the Brisbane game earlier this year would have been one where he was a bit a bit scratchy, but apart from that, very good. Um, the Shannon Knoll Award, almost did it again, but uh, the Shannon Knoll Award. Um, Michael, have you got one you wanted to, uh, to kick it off? We've said some nice things about him this week, but watching him over the last few weeks, um, there's a flaw in his game, and I'm talking about Tim Membry. Mm. Um, when he goes back late in the quarter or in a couple of weeks earlier in the quarter, he's an absolute rock. His judgment is terrific. He gets the, he, He's a terrific judgment of the ball drop. Um, he does some great work down back, but he's Achilles' heel to my eyes. Uh, when we when he takes a mark maybe 70, 80 metres out from goal and he's that next, he's the kick inside 50. He stops, he props, he waits too long. And mm. I've had conversations with people around me at games who say the same thing. He's, his weakness is just taking too long to get the ball inside 50. You know, players lead, double back, um, and he just ends up, tends to just, you know, bombing it to the to 20 or 30 meters out um, and he also bombs it without height too which is less than ideal it kind of just sort of wobbles in there and doesn't go more than about eight or nine feet off the ground which obviously gives forwards no chance so. yeah and you, you just compare that with someone like ben long who the minute he he's got the ball in his hands he's looking around he's you know he's kicking the first quarter to max uh for max to probably kick it out in the full but i was right behind that and it just needed a little bit of banana to give max some separation his opponent it was a beautiful kick 
didn't show up on the TV, but I was happened to be lucky enough to be right behind it. He, and Ben just curled just that little bit to give Max some separation and, and be able to take the mark. And then, of course, unfortunately, kicked it out in the full. But um, so, yeah, that's just the one thing that I think Tim needs to be a little bit better at. Nick, that, that uh, leads in pretty nicely to, to mine, which is Max. I mean, this guy has more talent in his pinky finger than 99% of AFL players in the history of the game have had. And it's so frustrating to watch him make some of these decisions and, and some of the things that he does on, on the field. We, we spoke about that moment where he tried to run through four blokes and zigzag through and, and uh, check side it from the boundary line. I mean, there are times when Max King looks like he's about to take over the world and it looks like he's about to be the greatest player in the history of the AFL. <laughs> and there are other times when he looks like baby Bambi. And yeah. that was, there were moments on the weekend against Hawthorne who do not have the greatest defense in the world that Max King looked like Bambi. And he should be looking at all of these games as opportunities to dominate other mm-hmm. AFL footballers. And that that particular moment, I, I was sitting next to my brother and I looked at him and I went, this guy is possibly the most frustrating footballer in the AFL because he's so talented. He has so much potential. And if he just puts it together, even a little bit, even 50% of his talent and his will and his want to make things happen. And you know, most of the time it comes down to just execution and decision-making and, and decision-making in execution, whether that's goal kicking or whatever. But, oh, Max... Max, you, you tease us and you tantalize us and then you rip it away. And I'm just, I, I'm getting a little bit sick of it. He no, should be the next AFL player to kick 10. He should. Yeah. But, yeah. If you had a dollar for every time you heard a caller go, you know, we can't wait till this bloke takes the competition by storm. Oh, we, we've said it, I reckon, about 16 times this year. And he's going to due for yeah. it. He's going to kick 50 goals for the year, but but you still feel like he's left a few on the table. He's kicked four. Well, he should have kicked 90. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, he's he should have kicked at least five on the on the weekend, I would think. But um, but yeah, definitely. And mine's a, a guy that hasn't done anything wrong. Um, so it's probably odd to put him into this segment, but a lot of it is to do with what they are capable of. This player has been immensely unlucky, but he's shown some signs in the last two weeks that he's ticking along quite nicely. I thought he put a nice game together against Hawthorne, and that's Hunter Clark. He's got a lot of ability. It's not fair, obviously. The fact last year he got knocked out in that Adelaide game. This year he got the shoulder injury in the preseason and then KO'd by a teammate against Carlton. He just hasn't been able to get a run at it due to bad luck. But the last few weeks, I mean, he's got so much ability, so much poise, so much time with ball in hand that if we are to have an impact over the next three to four weeks, he's one of those players that we haven't had much influence from this year that can help us get there. So for, for Hunter, just Effectively hoping that there's you know a bit of good fortunes on your side because um yeah you can be a fabulous player for us. There's there's one thing about Hunter Clark that and I and I think a lot of this can come down to some of that bad luck and the potentially some of the mental demons of the injuries and and whatever. But I mean for a guy that is so sublimely skilled and and he really is a yeah. very skilled footballer. And you you mentioned just just a minute ago about a guy that looks like he's got so much time and poise. Yeah, he reminds me in, in that sense when he wins the ball of of uh, a little bit of Nick Del Santo, a little bit of Scott Pendlebury, just has the time and understanding of what what's happening around him. And there are times that he just rushes things a little bit. And a guy that can deliver the football and dispose of the football as well as we know that he can, we've seen it. And, and we've seen it over decent periods of time. But for, for a guy that is as, as skilled and 
a, a football IQ, I think, so high as Hunter Clark, for him to be disposing the ball at, at 50 or 60% disposal efficiently is just not, not good enough. Um, but I think it's one of those things where understanding the things that he's had to overcome in the last 12 months, yeah. you have to play him despite that to get his confidence, to build his confidence up and, and to, I guess, to understand that he can do it, that he can do it again, that he can get back to being that player. And I think it's just one of those ones that we just got to, just got to play him and suck it up for a little while because he's, he can be a fantastic player. It's funny, despite that stat, um, I still relax. And in a game that's so yeah. fast paced and so tense, there's, mm. there's very few players that make you do that. Nick Del Sano had that, where yeah. just that split, calmness. Yeah, that yeah. split second when they get the ball, you just relax a little bit. You're just like, yeah. we're all right. It'll be okay. Yeah. Jack Sinclair's another one. You, yeah. you just relax when ball is in hand. Which is step. funny because Jack Sinclair actually has the most turnovers of any yeah. player at our football club this Which year. Is, but, it's funny. Um, yeah. It is funny, but he's also won the ball more than. Pretty yeah. much anyone at the football club this year, but um, you know, I heard some discussion during the week mm. of um, you know, our draft picks and how you know Billings has been pretty much a bust, and, and this was by a media pundit. I, I honestly can't remember who it was, but it was on telly or radio during the week, and and um, you know, Max King still left to his um, you know, living up to his potential, and they mentioned Clark and Caulfield as being you know, well, they you know, haven't done what you'd expect from a pick seven and eight. And I thought, goodness me, you know, Caulfield's lost a year to injury, he was mm. borderline all Australian in 2020. Um, you know, 2021, he didn't have the year that he would want to lie towards the end of the year, he was starting to look better and he had a fantastic preseason. Hunter Clark's had you know, just a shocking run with injuries, there's no other way to say it. So I thought that, that was pretty harsh. And I think, you know, next year, if we can get them both on the park for an injury free um, for a long, long period of time, we've got two really good footballers there. But before we, before we finish up, I just want to ask you guys a question. Cause you, you just mentioned it, Mick, about the, the perception of Billings being a bust. I, I want to ask you if, if Jack Billings had been a pick 28 or a pick mm. 36, is the perception that Jack Billings is a bust, is that still there? Or is it, is it, legitimately only because of the fact that he was a pick three and Bont went four and a number of other players went in the top 10 after, you know, after Billings, etc. Is it only that? Like, because if you look at, look at his career as a whole in, in the lens of once you've been drafted, you run out for your first game, draft pick doesn't matter anymore. Mm. You're an AFL player, just like 800 other blokes in, in the competition. In that lens, has his career, has he been a bust? Um, I think, I, I think it's unfortunately for, for better or worse, supporters do put the draft pick tag on. Sure. And, and he'll always, um, he'll always have that label. Yeah. So, you know, and he was it he's in his first year, he had that amazing game against the Bulldogs and pretty much won it for us off his own boot. Mm. And he'd start seasons really well. And, Look, it's, it's a legitimate point, and you're right, Nick. We shouldn't judge blokes by where they went in the draft. But I think when we took Billings at pick three, we were obviously third bottom when we got him. Um, and blokes like him and and Paddy, you, as you build and, you know, as you rebuild, um, there are certain expectations on blokes that you take high in the draft. Um, so I'm not saying that's right or, or wrong, but yeah. that's sort of supporter expectation. And, and Jack Billings is... A very good footballer. And as you say, if we'd gone at 
pick 55 in the draft, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, I guess, in, yeah, in reality, yeah, I agree. Not not a bust in that, yeah, 150 games. If, if Bontempelli went pick two instead of pick four um, or didn't exist at all, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be a different question. But, but I guess you kind of compare it to, um, it might be a bad analogy, but it, it's almost like, almost how much money you might pay for a particular item. It's a case of if, if, if someone gives you a hand-me-down car through the family that you paid 500 bucks for and it breaks down, you're kind of like, oh, whatever. But if you spent 70 grand on it, yeah. which is probably the difference between, say, pick three and pick 60, you're probably looking at it going, well, I expect... You know, I expect better performance from this. I expect this to last. I'll be disappointed if it breaks down as opposed to the other one where I'm like, oh, well, you know, you get what you pay for sort of thing. It's it's kind of, if you put it in monetary terms, you know, pick three might be, you know, 100 grand and pick 30 might be 20 grand. Uh, so it's just the, probably, yeah. The, the thing that gets me, and, and I mean, I, I, I've criticized the club as, as much as anybody when it comes to certain things and, and decision-making and, drafting, trading, mistakes, etc. I don't consider the Jack Billings pick at pick three as a mistake. And the no. reason I don't is because the Western Bulldogs are on record as saying Correct. if they had had pick three, they would have taken Jack Billings. And the reason that they reached for Marcus Bontepelli, who up until that night had not been discussed as almost a top 20 pick, let alone a top five pick, mm-hmm. was that Jack Billings was off the table. Everybody, every club in the land outside of picks one and two wanted Jack Billings. And so when you look at it as a whole, and yes, when you, you give up a pick three for a play, you expect 200 games of high quality football. You know, you're talking about Brownlow medalists. You're talking about Norm Smith medalists, premiership players, best and fairest, et cetera. I get that. But the decision on the night was the right one, given all the information that every club in the land had. And you'd probably still make that decision based on that information. And the most important part of all of that is um, Jack Billings' draft position is not Jack Billings' fault. So Correct. that's that's the one thing that's important out of and, all of that. Yeah. And I think, Mike, you, you said it best, that Jack Billings is a very good footballer. Like, mm-hmm. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Correct. Taking outside any draft position, Jack Billings can play football and has impacted games of football in ways that not many other players can and is is versatile is mobile you can play him in a number of positions in a number of different ways to suit the team and he does a job i think he'd be a good small forward as well but i mean top five I, in the yeah, bnf twice um yeah he's been a, a solid player hasn't been Bontempelli, we know that but um but solid that's not, again, that's there's, there's only correct. one marcus Bontempelli in the competition correct that's and right. as you say he was a bolter because he had a very good carnival i mean he's, he's nabbly hadn't been super but his rep carnival was amazing which obviously projected him up the list and that's the way it goes um obviously we'll discuss a lot of that as the, the weeks sort of go on. Hopefully we've got more than obviously three episodes left within the season. We're in the eight. We've set ourselves up to be there despite a lot of the doom and gloom around it. So as we look to Saturday night, let's dare to dream and do something special. Go Saints.